When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Now, as far as boots, I most of the time just use my regular hiking boots. Right. Comfort is the key because remember, you are hiking now and you have a pair of snowshoes strapped onto your boots that you will be lifting up and down continually. So you want your boots to be comfortable. The first time we went, I had a pair of snow boots on (laughs) with like fur on the inside that would be more for, you know, riding in a sled, (laughs) in a one horse open sled. (laughs) Yeah, your your dumb and dumber boots. (laughs) Yes, very similar to the boots that Lloyd was wearing in Aspen uh, in the movie Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, if we ever go to Aspen, you need to dig those out. (laughs) And that was the biggest mistake because because they were heavy, they were uncomfortable. Don't do that. <laughs> this is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're going to talk about an activity that's near and dear to our hearts, snowshoeing, in beautiful places that are near and dear to our hearts, the national parks, 12 of them to be exact. Snowshoeing is a great way to get some exercise outside during the wintertime and a chance to explore these parks during their slower season without all the crowds. Before we get into the list of the 12 parks, we'll give you some suggestions about the gear you'll need to get started plus some safety information that's important to know before you head out. But first, let's talk about New Year's resolutions. Oh man, it's hard to believe that 2022 has come to an end, and in a few days, it will be a brand new year. Yeah, it's time to throw out all of the leftover cookies and candies and cakes and dig out the blueberries and the kale. It's a very scary time of year, I gotta say. (laughs) You usually hate this time of year. I'm not looking forward to it. (laughs) To the healthy eating. No, but I do feel like I have a sumo wrestler suit on. So... (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's probably best for me. I think it probably is. Yeah, I know we're not big on New Year's resolutions, but a lot of people feel inspired during this time of the year to set goals and maybe make some changes in the new year, you know, some New Year's resolutions. Yeah, we wrote about this in season two. At the, I think it was at the end of the book, we were going to make some New Year's resolutions. Yours was you, you're not going to take your hair straightener with you. On our trips, you were going to just, what, be more spontaneous and outdoorsy? (laughs) How did that go, Karen? I'm still seeing that hair straightener. Uh, Yeah, that lasted about a week. (laughs) I don't think you ever kept that hair straightener home. That was just an idea. Right. It, It was a good idea. It just wasn't very practical for me. 
But what about your New Year's resolution back then, which by the way, I looked back was the year 2018. You had made a resolution, which by the way, wasn't a real New Year's resolution to bring maple syrup with you when we traveled so that you wouldn't have to eat any of that, what you called fake syrup in hotels and restaurants. I know. I let myself down. I should, I should re-resolve that <laughs> to bring maple syrup everywhere we go. You were, you were going to pour it from our big Costco maple syrup jug into those little airline size whiskey bottles. I don't know why, how Jack, you came Jack, up with that. Jack Daniels bottle. bottle. <laughs> right. that's, that's actually kind of a fun thing because it looks just like whiskey when you put them in those. And then when you're sitting at the Hampton Inn and like, you know, the, the soccer team from Wisconsin who's getting ready to play their game and everyone's at the waffle bar and I'm elbowing my way in there to, to make my waffle and I pull out my Jack Daniels and <laughs> pour, pour it on my waffles. Yeah, I, I need to do that. And remember, then a few years before that, well, actually, this maybe 10 years ago. Remember, you dedicated your life to the coconut. <laughs> That was like a life resolution. That was just a year resolution. Okay, I'm still living that. I, you dedicated I, your life to yes, the coconut? Yes, I'm still obsessed with everything coconut. It's everything that's good in this world, Matt. <laughs> it smells good. It tastes good. It makes you feel like it's tropical in summertime. You can put it on your body. You can eat it. Right. You can smell it. Right. Yeah. Why, why haven't we done more than coconut and maple products? Okay. We, okay. We, need, <laughs> we need to be better about our resolutions. Right. I think those are great new resolutions moving forward. Now, we did have another good suggestion from one of our listeners. Um, we got an email from Shelly in Decatur, Illinois, and she was suggesting some goals that people could make at the start of the new year to get outside and explore our public lands all year long. And she had some good suggestions. Now, a lot of people are familiar with the 52 hike challenge. I didn't know anything about this, but I guess it's you do one hike every week for a year. And there's even a website called the 52hikechallenge.com. Right. That's kind of a big deal. A lot of people do that. I think it's great. But, you know, it's pretty ambitious. And a lot of people aren't able to do one hike every week for a year. So I guess there's also a thing which I didn't know about called first hike. And many states promote a first day hike on January 1st, you know, of every new year. But Shelley suggested, why not have a goal of hiking the first day of every month. The first day of every month. Well, I guess, I guess if, if you don't have anything else going on that, that day, <laughs> on April 1st, can you like just tell people that you hiked? And then later, like two days later, said, April Fool's, I didn't. I, I, I actually went on the second. Yeah, Matt. <laughs> if, if you hike on the fifth of the month, does it count? <laughs> this. <laughs> I don't, I don't think understand. I don't think you're really motivating people to get out. I don't, I don't understand the, the, the thing. All right. Here's another one. How about visiting 23 parks in 2023? Those could be any parks. I'm not talking about visiting 23 national parks, but people could visit 23 state parks or county parks. And I think it's just having a thing, right? It's having a goal. Like when we went to all the national parks, it's having a thing that kind of motivates people. And like we found out, you never know where that's going to lead and what you're going to see and what you're going to do. Yeah, that's you could do that. How would dog parks? Would those count? I, I dog, think 
Some people go to a dog park every day. Of course they do. I think any park. <laughs> the dogs like that. <laughs> They're okay. wait, waiting for, when are we going back to the park? Okay. <laughs> Especially if you live like in an apartment. That'd be a, okay. a park a day. Uh-huh. 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 Okay, are you done? I just wanted to announce that Matt Smith will be starting his motivational tour sometime in 2023. Yeah, if you can do it on the first, do it on the first. But if it takes, if you don't get around to it till the eighth of the month, that's fine. Right, like, right. We, we need to. Be, it's kinder and gentler. 2023, Karen. All right, Matt. I think it's time to move on. So this is a good transition because. I think for a lot of people, and for us, it's tough to get outside and hike in the winter, but the one thing that can really help you is to take up snowshoeing. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that snowshoeing changed our lives. Well, it really has. In all seriousness, when we moved here, gosh, almost uh, 24 years ago to the Pacific Northwest, we did take up skiing and snowboarding primarily because our kids were learning to do that so we wanted to be with them and and that was a great way to get outdoors in the wintertime but we don't do that anymore well we don't (laughs) because you know we started learning I think we were like 38 at the time and Matt you were like a natural on the snowboard but I struggled the entire time on skis and I'll never forget learning to ski and you would whiz past me on your snowboard and you would yell out make a pizza Which is the technique that they teach the little kids. <laughs> yeah, the, the four-year-olds that they're teaching how to ski. Right. It's either pizza or french fries. Right. They're, they're the shape of your skis. You make french fries when you go fast, and then you make a pizza when you want to slow down. I never graduated to the french fry stage of skiing. I was always in the pizza always mode. Always in the pizza. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, I don't know, sometime before I turned 50, I retired from skiing. I retired my career because I was afraid of... I was afraid of breaking my leg or breaking my neck. And so um, that ended. And then, you know, after that, for years, our winters were spent inside, moping around, looking out the window and waiting for spring and hiking season. And we didn't realize how we could still get out and hike just by strapping on a pair of snowshoes. Yeah. And snowshoeing is really, it's not much different than hiking. It allows you to go places in deep snow where uh, you just can't go in, in hiking boots. But before we snowshoed, I thought it would be something very, very different, you know, almost like cross-country skiing or something like that. But it's uh, very similar to hiking, just better equipment to get you through the deep snow. Absolutely. On a lot of the National Park websites, when they talk about their snowshoe activities, they say, if you can walk, you can snowshoe. And I think that's correct. Now, the only thing to keep in mind is some of these parks we're going to talk about are at very high elevation. And so um, it does become a little more strenuous when you are snowshoeing at 8,000, 9,000 feet. Yeah, and snowshoeing itself is a little harder. I mean, it's not a lot harder. They say it burns about 50% more calories than hiking. I think that's probably right. But I I think there's times where we've snowshoed where I, I can't really tell the difference between snowshoeing and hiking. So if you haven't snowshoed before, don't think that it's this really strenuous thing. It can be if you're, like you said, high in elevation or steep terrain or something like that. But it's very similar to hiking. Now, we have been snowshoeing for probably a dozen years or so. Uh, So we started fairly late in life and anybody can start at any time. 
I snowshoed for the first time when I went to a trip to Whistler, Canada with some of my girlfriends. And one of them had a house up there and had snowshoes and we strapped them on and went. And I absolutely fell in love with it at that point. And then Matt, I talked you into it shortly after that. We as a couple snowshoed for the first time when we were on our parks trip. We were in Yellowstone during the winter. It was early February and we had done a snowmobile tour, but we also had an extra day, so we rented snowshoes, and we went into the Lamar Valley, and that was an incredible experience. First of all, the snow was deep and untracked, so we were able to go places where no one else had been. It was one degree, I, I think, <laughs> yes. and I remember not being cold the whole time, because we were burning calories as we were doing it. And we also inadvertently got uh, pretty close to some wildlife on that snowshoe. We did. And that's another plus about snowshoeing. You might get to see some wildlife that you wouldn't get to see otherwise. Uh, So we were just the two of us out there in Lamar Valley walking. And all of a sudden, we came upon some trees. And as we passed the first tree, we glanced to the left. And there was a solitary male bison Gosh, what, Matt, maybe 20 feet away from us? He was hiding. He was hiding in the trees. He was looking at it. He was eyeballing us. Uh Uh-huh. And we were eyeballing him. Yeah. We didn't know what to do. We saw him as we came right parallel to him. So there was no backing away. Uh, So we just very calmly kept going. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he didn't move. He didn't. And then, you know, an hour later when we turned around, we were hoping that he wasn't there anymore, but he still hadn't moved. So we had to pass him again. We did. We we made a wider path, though, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. coming coming back. We, we gave him a good, I don't know, 100 feet at least, but we had to get past him to get back to the car. So uh, we didn't have a choice, but uh, we gave him a, a little bit more room on the way back. So in addition to seeing wildlife and getting out in the winter and getting some exercise, These parks are transformed in the winter into this snowy wonderland. And so it's just such a beautiful season to go. And it's also a season that doesn't have as many crowds in these parks. No, it's it's not crowded at all, usually. I mean, when we snowshoe, we rarely see uh, too many other people. Sometimes we don't see any other humans when when we're snowshoeing. Uh, And the other cool thing about snowshoeing is if you are in a place that gets maybe three, four, five feet of snow, the snow covers up all sorts of obstacles that you would have normally during during the summertime, and you can essentially make your own trail in a lot of places. There was one, one time when we were in a an area that had a lot of sagebrush and uh, low vegetation that was maybe you know three or four feet tall, but the snow was so deep it covered all of that, and we were able to go just straight to wherever we wanted. And we were just right up up over the sagebrush. And some low fences, too. We we saw some fences where Mm -hmm. the the top barbed wire of the fence was literally laying on the surface of the snow. We just stepped right over it. That's right. Yeah, so, so that's a lot of fun. So for all of you who already snowshoe, we're going to get to the uh, 12 parks in just a minute. But for all of you who are thinking about getting started, we're going to talk about um, what you need to get started and then a few safety things as well. So first of all, you need snowshoes, right? We own our own. We snowshoe enough that we felt like it was worth it to, to get our own and, and choose exactly the, the make and model that we wanted. 
But I think if you're going to start off, I think it makes sense to rent first just to get a feel for whether or not you like it. Right. They're inexpensive to rent. And and sometimes we even rent because we'll go somewhere. We didn't bring our snowshoes because either the truck's completely packed or we didn't think there would be good snow. And then we'll just rent if we decide, well, hey, let's it's perfect conditions to snowshoe. And a lot of these rental places, they have good quality snowshoes. And also they have a very knowledgeable staff who will also talk to you about the trails that you're going to head out on and, and a lot of important things. So renting is always a good first step. Yeah, another advantage of renting is the concessionaire is going to know the conditions and probably have the snowshoes that are best for that area. If you decide you like snowshoeing and and now you're thinking, well, it's time to buy, there are a couple of things to think about. One is what are the conditions you're going to snowshoe in, which you never know. If it's icy, you might want a, a different type of snowshoe. If it's deep powder, that's different. So that's a little tricky if you're buying snowshoes and you're going to be snowshoeing in lots of different conditions. We started with a pretty inexpensive pair of MSR Evos. Mm -hmm. Not real big snowshoes, so it didn't have a lot of flotation, but they had really good grippers on the bottom. And so when we were starting out, we had happened to just be in a lot of areas with ice. And so those grippers on the bottom really helped with the ice. They didn't have a lot of surface areas, so they weren't great in uh, deep snow, but they were a great option. One, because they were inexpensive, and two, they were kind of all-purpose, and we had those for a few years. Right, and we also had, you had a pair of tails for those to add to the back, right, to make them longer, to add to the flotation when you are in deep snow. Right, a tail is just about a four or five inch piece of plastic that snaps on the back of the Mm -hmm. snowshoes and just gives you extra surface area, so if you're in powder or if you're <laughs> heavy if you right. are, if you weigh more right they are sized according to your weight as well um, now after a few years with the MSR Evo then we upgraded to the MSR Lightning Ascent we both have those I think Matt you gave those to me as a birthday gift and I gave you a pair as a Christmas gift they are a little pricey roughly around the $350 range but if you love snowshoeing and you know you're going to do it for years to come it's definitely worth the price tag Right. What I like about the Lightning Ascent, the bindings are about as simple as, of a binding as you're going to find on a snowshoe. And so uh, it's, you know, it's never super easy to put these on because you're cold and you're bundled up and you got gloves on and you're bending over and all, all those things. Right. But they're pretty easy, about the easiest we have found to put on. The other thing is the ascent in the name of the, of the model means that they have a little metal device on the heel that if you're going uphill, you can flip that little metal piece and it raises your back heel. So it, it changes the angle of your foot. So it feels like you're still walking on flat ground, even though you're going uphill. Right. And that, and that is actually pretty helpful. Now, the MSR Ascent comes in three different sizes. So there's a 22-inch, a 25, and a 30-inch. So it's going to depend on your weight, and it's going to depend, like you said, Matt, on the conditions. 
I would say, you know, that 30 inch is big and you don't want to tromp around with, as they say, clown feet all the time. I would, if you're a beginner, I would go smaller. You can always buy tails to put on. But I think that for people who are going to stay on the trail and a trail that's, you know, pretty packed down from other snowshoers, the smaller size is probably better. Yeah, I have... Because in between the Evos and the Lightning Ascent, I bought these other uh, larger shoes for powder, and they're big. They're Mm -hmm. like 30 inches, and when I'm in powder, they are great to have, but I don't want to wear them unless I absolutely need them because, like you said, they are you know like like clown shoes, and, and they kind of bang into each other. You and I both have the same size of snowshoe, these Lightning Ascents. We both have the 22-inch size, and that's been a good size for us almost every snowshoe hike we've been on. Yeah. Probably our best advice is when you go to buy your snowshoes, talk to the person who is selling them to you at the outfitter because they will be a big help in determining what size you need. All right. So, Matt, what other items do snowshoers need to be wearing and having with them? Well, one item that I didn't think I needed until we snowshoed a couple times are gaiters. And gaiters are just a a piece of gear, kind of flexible cloth with Velcro closures that that hook on the heel of your boots and then cover up the bottom 18 inches of your legs where your pants meet your boots. And it keeps all the snow out. So there's no chance of snow going up in your pant leg, down your boots, all of that. And if you have a good pair of gaiters, it it makes it much, much more enjoyable because if you don't, and we've snowshoed without gaiters, snow gets up in your pants and then it goes, you know, gets stuck to your leg and all of that. It can be pretty uncomfortable. Uh, So get a good pair of gaiters. Yes, we have Black Diamond gaiters. We love them. I'm sure there are other great brands out there. I think ours cost around $75-ish, but definitely invest in a pair of gaiters. Uh, You will not regret it. Um, another item that I use um, are my trekking poles. I know, Matt, you you don't use trekking poles when we snowshoe. I don't. It's just a preference. Uh, they are helpful, especially in deep snow if you get kind of stuck and you have to, you know, if your leg gets buried and you have to pull it out, it gives you something to push against. And, and people just like to have the extra support of trekking poles. One thing to keep in mind if you're buying your trekking poles generally for hiking in the summer, and a lot of people take those plastic baskets off of the bottoms, um, you know, those big three to four inch baskets because they're kind of in the way in the summertime, do not throw those away. <laughs> <laughs> Put them somewhere where you know where you can find them because in the winter you want to screw those back on and those baskets give your poles more flotation when you're putting them in the snow. Right. Those are very necessary. One time I snowshoe didn't have them and the trekking pole goes all the way through the snow, all the way to to the ground. And it's not even worth having trekking poles if you don't have that snow basket on there. So another thing, obviously, are layered warm clothes. And we say layered because oftentimes, almost every time, we will start out wearing multiple layers with long underwear, several shirts, a jacket, and so on. And then as we snowshoe and the sun comes out, we get hot and we stop and we start shedding the layers. Um, So it's important to have a layering system in the clothes that you choose to snowshoe in. Right. What I do on for my tops... I try to have all the layers have a zipper 
you know, at least from the neck down halfway at least, because that way I don't have to take anything off. I can just keep unzipping the layers and I can get all the way down to the t-shirt if I'm really warm and then the heat kind of dissipates and then you're going to get cold again. And so you can kind of take the zippers up and down without having to take your clothes off completely. And that ventilation process seems to work really well for me. Also, it's nice to have a few extra items of clothing in your backpack, like an extra hat. If you're if you get sweaty, an extra pair of gloves, maybe even an extra shirt. If you happen to be in a very wet snowstorm and you're you're now wet, it's nice to have some dry clothes to put on. Yeah. Now, as far as boots, I used to think you you have to have a special insulated heavy duty pair of boots to snowshoe, and I most of the time just use my regular hiking boots. Right. And my feet never get cold. Maybe it's because we're always moving around. I do have one extra thick pair of hiking socks, but my regular hiking boots and snowshoes, my feet never get cold. Yeah, mine don't either. But comfort is the key because remember, you are hiking now and you have a pair of snowshoes strapped onto your boots that you will be lifting up and down continually. So you want your boots to be comfortable. The first time we went, I had a pair of snow boots on and with like fur on the inside that would be more for, you know, riding in a sleigh, in a one horse open sleigh. Yeah, your your dumb and dumber boots. (laughs) Yes, very similar to the boots that Lloyd was wearing in Aspen uh, in the movie Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, if we ever go to Aspen, you need to dig those out. And that was the biggest mistake because they were heavy. They were uncomfortable. Don't do that. Um, Get some comfortable boots. And yeah, if they're waterproof, that's great. But again, whatever you hike in is usually fine for snowshoeing. Yeah. And they should be waterproof. That is something that, that that's pretty important. Yeah. A few other items, sunscreen. Don't forget that even though it's winter, the sun comes out, you are at high elevation and uh, so many people get sunburned without even realizing it. And of course, uh, some sun protection for your lips and very important as sunglasses. Yeah. And of course, you need uh, you need to take water with you. And matter of fact, I think you sweat more snowshoeing than regular hiking um, and your clothes are absorbing it and you probably don't realize how much water you're losing to perspiration. And then you need food, or Mm -hmm. at least I would take electrolytes. I've been now carrying a product called Bolt. They're like little gummies that have electrolytes in it. And those seem to work really well because a lot of times I'll get leg cramps when we snowshoe. And the Bolt really seems to help. Noon, N-U-U-N also helps. Right. It's just electrolyte drink. Right. And I know, Matt, you always take hand warmers and toe warmers. For some reason, my hands don't get cold. I don't use those, but I know you you always have some with you, too. I take them, and we rarely use them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if, if uh, you know, we get to a destination and we're sitting around for a half an hour, maybe eating lunch, and you're not moving as much, they're good for that. And, you know, like all other hikes, uh, what you bring with you is dependent on how far you're going to go and how strenuous and how um, deserted the, the trail is. So if you are going out for a quick one mile snowshoe and you're, you're on a populated trail, you don't need as much as you might if you are setting off on a much longer snowshoe. So tailor your backpack and the 10 essentials to, you know, where you are going and how far you are going. Yeah, just think of it as a snowy hike. Right. And uh, take the 10 essentials accordingly. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, one thing you absolutely need, and we're going to talk about a few safety things, is a GPS or the Gaia app or some kind of navigational tool. Yeah, because most of the time, whatever trail you're following, or maybe you're making your own trail, it's usually obscured by the snow. So a lot of times you're not really sure if you're on the trail. And so uh, something like a Gaia GPS app on your phone that works off of the GPS transponder in your phone, not, not off of a cell signal, it will tell you where you are at all times. And if you hit the record function on that app, it leaves a breadcrumb. So if you get lost, and, and there was one time we were, I don't know if it was snowing so hard, but it was certainly windy and the wind obscured our tracks and we could not see our tracks from where we came from. And in order to get back to the truck, if we were relying on just following our footprints, we wouldn't have known where we were going. So the Gaia GPS app let us know exactly where we were and we could follow the breadcrumb back to the truck. Yes. And we've also been in uh, snowshoeing conditions where it started out sunny and nice. And after you know, a half an hour, a whiteout descended, and we couldn't see two feet in front of us or behind us. So again, scary. Uh, the only way we could get back is because we had that uh, we had that app. So really, really important to know where you're going. Also, we would suggest that beginners stick to a well-traveled trail or a road and not set off cross country on their own. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, bad things can happen if you're going cross country. One of which is you you never know what you're walking on top of and sometimes if let's say there's a pond or a small lake and it's not completely frozen, you could you could walk right across the top of it and you you could go in. Right. And another danger is tree wells. Yeah, yeah, tree wells are sneaky and super scary if you've ever almost gone into one. I have done that several times while snowboarding, and it is not fun. If you end up headfirst in a tree well, sometimes it's it's impossible by yourself to get out. Uh, you really need to be rescued. And this is what happens when there's heavy, deep snow. The snow does not accumulate around the trunk of the tree, and it builds up and builds up around like the drip line of, of the branches. And it creates this, well, it's a well, right? And these things can be seven, eight, ten feet deep. And if you slip and fall in one, and particularly head first, you can suffocate pretty quick. you got to stay away from the base of trees uh, when there's deep snow. Yes. One other danger uh, that you might encounter while you're snowshoeing are avalanches. A lot of our favorite trails here in Washington, hiking trails that are in the national forests about an hour or so from us, almost all of them are off limits for snowshoers because you cross avalanche fields and it's extremely dangerous. Yeah, those avalanche shoots, you see them when you're hiking in the summertime. It's a bare area on the side of a mountain with usually a lot of rock and scree. And that's where the avalanches happen in the wintertime, and they happen pretty often. And I know people kind of dismiss that, and, oh, it's not going to happen to me, and, oh, it's fine. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, every year you hear stories of people 
getting caught in avalanches when they're out snowshoeing. And so you really have to be careful. It's just not worth it. There's plenty of other great places to snowshoe. And when you go to the national parks to snowshoe, you can just talk to a ranger about where these avalanche dangers are. They'll give you a map. They'll give you suggestions of where to snowshoe. So we're not trying to scare anyone away from snowshoeing. Just be aware of these dangers and be smart about what you're doing and where you're going. So one other safety thing or or tip to keep in mind is that you'll be driving in snow to and from these parks. And you need to be prepared for treacherous road conditions. So we always take tire chains. You should have some emergency supplies in your truck or car with you. Some food, definitely some water, blankets. I mean, mm-hmm. just, just some basic stuff that if you're going to be in your car or truck for a couple of days, you'll be okay. Right. And one note about the tire chains that you mentioned, Matt, many of the national parks require that you have tire chains. They won't let you pass the entrance station and they will ask you. I know we've been to Yosemite in the winter and Rainier and Olympic. And every time when we pass through the entrance booth, the ranger says, do you have tire chains in your car? So it's required for most of them. And if it's not required, it's just a really smart idea. Yeah. And practice putting them on in your garage at home because You don't want to be reading the instructions in a blizzard on the side of a road with trucks passing you by and you're not really sure which do I hook the yellow thing to the red thing (laughs) first or do I put the blue thing over the wheel. It, It can be very frustrating in the cold and snowing to learn how to put those things on. Try to do it at home first. Well, I hope you don't ever become incapacitated at the same time we have to put on our tire chains because I I have not practiced that. Well, and the other tip is for everyone who is in the truck, like riding as a passenger, have them practice as well. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case something happens to you and, and they need to put the chains on. That's right. Now that we've scared all of you away from snowshoeing, let's talk about where to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 a great winter activity. Everyone should do it. It is. So we're going to talk about 12 national parks that have some great snowshoeing, but you can also find great snowshoeing in your state parks and in national forests and, you know, country roads where you might live. You know, if there's enough snow, You can snowshoe anywhere. That's right. All right, Matt, what's the first one on the list? Well, the first one is Acadia National Park in Maine. And like a lot of the parks we're going to talk about, many of the roads that are traffic jams during the busy seasons are closed to cars in the winter, and they become snowshoe and cross-country ski trails. Yes, a lot of you know that most of the Park Loop Road is closed in the winter, but snowshoers and cross-country skiers can still access it in two areas. And if you want to, you can snowshoe all the way up to the top of Cadillac Mountain and enjoy the spectacular views in the snow. Now, that would be cool to do, wouldn't it, Matt? It would. And I don't think that would be super hard if you did the road. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean... I guess we would find out. I I, I would imagine that the views up there when there's snow everywhere are are just spectacular. Yes. That's my go-to word. I'll I'll let you borrow uh, my amazeballs. (laughs) (laughs) No, if those are my choices, I'm going to stay with spectacular. (laughs) Now, 
Along the road, snowmobiles are allowed, so you will be sharing the road with them. And uh, we want to bring up a point of etiquette. Um, You want to be sure that when you're snowshoeing, you stay in the unplowed side of the road and do not cross over into the cross-country ski tracks. The the cross-country skiers don't like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's bad form. The Mm -hmm. etiquette is snowshoers have their own path. The cross-country skiers have their own I mean, it's not like if you have to cross over and you put like one footprint on the cross-country ski tracks, it's it's not the end of the world. But a lot of times I have seen people where there's plenty of room and you've got the cross-country ski tracks and they snowshoe right over the top of them. That That's not good. There's plenty of room for both. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't want to share the road with snowmobilers and you want a little more solitude, you can snowshoe on Acadia's beautiful carriage roads. And there are more than 40 miles of groomed roads uh, that wind through the eastern section of the park. So if you haven't been to Acadia yet, these carriage roads were um, built by the landowners to keep out the cars, and there are still no cars allowed there. So all you'll see on these carriage roads are snowshoers and cross-country skiers. Um, The snowmobilers are not allowed. So that would be a wonderful place to um, get some solitude and some of the beauty of Acadia. All right, moving on to Bryce Canyon in Utah. And, you know, if you haven't seen Bryce Canyon in snow, it is one of the the most beautiful sights we've seen in the national parks. Yeah, it really is. And a ton of fun to snowshoe. Yes, absolutely. And you can snowshoe throughout all of the trails in the park. Now, it is strenuous there because you're at 8,000 feet in Bryce Canyon. So a lot of snowshoers do the walks along the rim trail, along the bristlecone loop, if the road is open all the way up to there, and along Fairyland Road. So, so a lot of people don't go down into the canyon. That is a steep drop down <laughs> into the canyon. It is. But if you have snowshoes on, I mean, one of the great things about snowshoes are they're super grippy so you can go down these steeper trails even though there's snow and ice on them and feel pretty safe now if you don't have your own snowshoes there is a ranger led snowshoe hike that's available in bryce it's designed for all levels of experience whether you're a beginner or an expert Uh, they provide the snowshoes and poles for free for those who sign up for the program It's about a two-hour snowshoe, one mile, and it's for um, people who are eight years and older. You can sign up at the visitor center the day of the program starting at 8 a.m., and they'll continue the signups until it's fall. You cannot, on this one, you cannot sign up in advance or reserve a spot. It's just day of. Well, that's a great option for people who are learning. Absolutely. Yeah. And and to go with a ranger who will give you all kinds of tips and suggestions, and that is a great way to get started. Right. Okay, the next national park we're going to talk about is Crater Lake in Oregon. It gets a lot of snow, averages over 40 feet of snow every year. Crater Lake, the lake itself, has not frozen over since 1949, and that's pretty cool because it's a great visual if you're oh up, up on the rim. We've never snowshoed at Crater Lake because the one time we went up there in February to snowshoe, it was very foggy and we couldn't see more than 10 feet in front of us. And we later found out that this happens about 50% of the time in winter. I was surprised to find that out. But on a clear weather day, that's an incredible place to snowshoe. Yes, you've got that gorgeous turquoise 
lake surrounded by the snow and the white cliffs. And again, I'm saying that we've only seen photos because we got all the way up there and it was completely fogged in. Now, part of that was our fault. What you can do is they have webcams on the on the National Park website for Crater Lake. And so what we should have done is before we made the drive up there, we could have checked the webcams and we would have seen that it was foggy and we wouldn't have gone. We happened to be driving by the turnoff, so it wasn't that big of a, a wasted effort for us, but uh, we'd suggest, you know, definitely check those before you head up there. The rim road, the road that circles the rim of the lake, is closed to cars in the winter, but but they plow the roads from the south and the west to the entrance. And unless a snowstorm has just come in, you can drive up to the Rim Village. Now they do offer, again, ranger-led snowshoe walks on Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays from December 10th through April 30th. These walks start at one o'clock, they last two hours, and they cover anywhere from one to two miles of moderate to strenuous terrain. It's said on the website, they don't follow a trail. This is an off-trail exploration through the forests. Yeah, it's interesting that they say that they offer these up through April 30th. Obviously, there's usually a lot of snow around until the end of April. It just gives you an indication of how long the snow sticks around at, at some of these parks that are, that are up in elevation. Right. We talked about that when we did the episode about Crater Lake. And if you are visiting in the summer, you want to hold off on that trip until at least July if you want to hike on the trails without any snow. Uh, so if you want to join a ranger-led snowshoe walk, you don't need any experience. They will provide snowshoes free of charge. And again, uh, participants should be at least eight years old. Now, in this case, they do take advanced reservations. So for more information, you can look at the website or call the visitor center. Every single one of these parks that we're going to talk about has a different kind of ranger-led snowshoe walk if they offer it. Some take reservations, some don't. Make sure you check the website if this is something that you want to participate in. Okay, Karen, let's move to Glacier National Park in Montana, where we've done a lot of snowshoeing. We have, because it's a very different season in the winter. It's very quiet. You know, recently we did um, an Instagram post about Glacier in the winter, and people should know that Almost all of the roads are closed. The park lodges are closed. The visitor centers are closed. And snowmobiling is not allowed. So basically, you can only go in the park as far as your legs will take you. Right. You have to start at the edge of the park somewhere where you yes. can get access. Mm -hmm. And then, then you can snowshoe into the park as far as you want. But sure. some of the roads are open in the winter. This year in particular, there, there's been more closures because there's some construction going on. Right. Typically, when you go in the west entrance in the winter, you can drive all the way to Lake McDonald Lodge, park there, and snowshoe up going to the Sun Road if that's what you want to do. But as you said, Matt, this year they've closed that section of the road, and the furthest you can go in the west entrance is the Abgar Visitor Center, which will be closed, but you would have access to bathrooms and a water filling station. So if you're going to Glacier National Park to snowshoe, there are places close to the park where you can rent snowshoes, uh, but there isn't any rental 
in the park itself. In past years, Glacier used to have ranger-led snowshoe hikes on the weekends. This winter, they are not due to staffing shortages. Um, But if you look on their website, they do have a really great uh, trail system outlined for snowshoers and cross-country skiers. And they have it by area. So if you're in the West Glacier, Apgar area, they they outline where you can snowshoe. If you're in the Pole Bridge area or if you're in the St. Mary area and so on. So definitely check the park website. Okay, Karen, let's go to Wyoming to Grand Teton National Park. Okay. We tried to snowshoe there on our very first visit, remember? And unfortunately... Yeah, I had a really, really bad headache. I don't know if it was altitude sickness or what, but we just got to the visitor center and took our photo by the park sign and then immediately got back in the car and left the park. We need to go back there and give that another try. We do. I would love to do that. I can only imagine that it's absolutely beautiful. The um, The Teton Park Road is closed to cars from November 1st to April 30th, but you can ski, snowshoe, or walk along the, the road during the winter. You can go from Taggart Lake Trailhead to the Signal Mountain Lodge and then look up at the base of the Teton Range covered in snow. Um, the views must just be spectacular. It would be so cool to see a moose in the snow. Would we see a moose along the road, do you think? Is that a mailbag question, Matt? Is that for is that, future mailbag? Because <laughs> I don't have that on the outline, anything about moose. <laughs> if we would see a moose by the road, maybe they just like honker down and nibble some <laughs> plants that are close by. I don't know. I have no idea. Could you do some research on this? <laughs> All right. We'll put that in our next mailbag. Now is a question from Matt Smith yeah. in Seattle, Washington. All right, continuing on. And even though this road is closed to cars, uh, thanks to generous donations and a grant from the Grand Teton National Park Foundation, they groom the road in the winter. So so it's ideal for winter recreation. And I guess, it, you know, it extends, this groomed part extends like almost 15 miles. So you could go for a good long way. Right, and the, and the groomed areas in any of these parks, mostly those groomed trails are for cross-country skiers to make their paths. Mm -hmm. Although there's usually enough space in those groomed areas where there can be a couple of tracks for cross-country skiers and room also left for snowshoers. There's enough room for everybody. Okay, so moving on to Lassen Volcanic National Park in Northern California. This is um, a pretty amazing winter park. It is. We had a great visit there mid to late September, and it snowed a couple inches even then. I know. And that was pretty cool. We have never been there in the wintertime. We would love to go there and snowshoe in that park as well. We would. Now, but there are two areas you can snowshoe. There's the southwest area, and that is where the visitor center is, the big, nice visitor center called, let me see if I can get this right, Matt, Komiyamani. Komiyamani. I'm just guessing at that. We've been there, but I still don't know how to pronounce it. And it is open in the winter. Um, and it offers services from November to early May. So uh, the road is closed beyond the visitor center. You can go to the visitor center. They're going to offer ranger-led snowshoe walks January through March. And again, they provide the snowshoes. And again, you need to be eight years and older for this ranger-led walk. And the other area where you can snowshoe is Manzanita Lake, which is in the northwest part of the park. 
I saw on all trails that the number one rated snowshoe trail is the two-mile Manzanita Lake Loop. Yeah, that would be cool to do. Yeah, so check out Lassen in the wintertime. I'm sure it is beautiful. We should note that last winter, the ranger-led walks were canceled due to COVID, and there isn't anything currently on the website about this winter. So double-check on that for January. Also, there are no snowshoe rentals in the park, but the park website lists some places nearby where you can rent if you want to. Okay, let's go to Mount Rainier National Park in our home state of Washington. We have snowshoed there many times. It's a beautiful park in the winter. It is, and it's currently embroiled in a bit of controversy. So tell us all about it, Karen. (laughs) All right. So in the winter, the only entrance in the park that's open to vehicles is the Nisqually entrance. This is in the southwest. And from there, you can go to Longmire. There's a nice uh, national park in there where we've stayed. And you have access up to the area that's known as Paradise. This is where all the snow fun happens. Now, in past years, the road to Paradise was open every day of the week. And now this year for the first time, due to staffing shortages, they are closing access to Paradise during the weekdays, and you can only go up there on Saturdays and Sundays. Yeah, I'm wondering how that's going because that's just going to concentrate the visitors to the weekends. And and we've been up there on weekends in the winter and it's already crowded during years where it's open every day. So yeah, I'm wondering how that's going. I don't know, but the residents of Washington State are furious. This is one of our major snow recreation areas. And so to close this for five days a week, people are are feeling pretty outraged about this. So we'll see what happens. Community members have launched a petition to reopen the access to paradise during the week. And did you send a complaint letter to the manager signed from a Karen? I mean, Karen? (laughs) Did you... (laughs) Ask for the supervisor. I did send a complaint letter and I signed it, Matt Smith. Did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you should be hearing from them soon. Yeah, they also had a sledding hill up mm. there that they staffed in most years. And I think that's also closed due to lack of staff yes. this year. And that that was a big thing for families to do. Oh, yes. So much fun. You would see kids and families and their sleds up there. And that has been canceled every day this winter. You can't even do that on the weekends any longer. They did just update the website to announce that they will have ranger-led snowshoe hikes this winter. They're first come, first served on Saturdays and Sundays through March. So as staffing allows, these snowshoe walks start at 11 a.m. and meet inside the Jackson Visitor Center in Paradise. Sign-ups begin one hour in advance of the scheduled time. Snowshoe walks cover about 1.8 miles in two hours. And the snowshoe walks are limited to 25 people and you have to be eight years or older to participate. So double check if you're interested in that. Yeah, we have fond memories of snowshoeing up in the Paradise area. We snowshoed the unplowed closed section of the road to Reflection Lake and then back through the woods. We've snowshoed the Nisqually Vista Trail, and we've done parts of the Skyline Trail. Right. That Skyline Trail is a little tricky because uh, it always seems to fog in, and there are some steep drop-offs in places and some avalanche dangers. And the rangers are good about um, giving you advice. They have a map they gave us that had all of the avalanche dangers marked so we knew where we shouldn't go. 
Also down in the little developed area of Longmire, where the inn is, there is a little ranger station there. You can get information and there's a store where you can rent snowshoes if you don't have your own. Okay, so that's uh, Mount Rainier National Park, but also in the state of Washington is Olympic National Park on the Olympic Peninsula. Yes, and Hurricane Ridge is a winter wonderland. There are 15 to 20 miles of trails up there. Uh, It's famous for its cross-country skiing and snowshoeing. But in the winter, it also has a little ski hill. Yeah, there's, uh, I think they're tow ropes mm-hmm. uh, and, and the ski hills. It's it's pretty small, but it's a beautiful area. It gets tons of snow. So the conditions are usually pretty good. And they are also only open on weekends. And Friday. Yes. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We've snowshoed, what's that Hurricane Hill Trail? Mm-hmm. That's a great snowshoe trail. And it, it can be crowded. Yeah, it seems like most of the people who go up there are either tubing, sledding, or skiing. There weren't that many people snowshoeing, actually, when, we, when we've when we gone up there. It seems most of the visitors are doing other activities. One of the cool things about Olympic in the winter is you could take a hike in the rainforest one day. It might be 45 degrees with no snow. And then the next day, drive up the 17-mile Hurricane Ridge Road, and you're in a winter wonderland. I know. Such an amazing, diverse park. Now, the deal is uh, to go up Hurricane Ridge Road. They open the road to uphill traffic on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays from 9 to 4. So you want to get there at least by 9, maybe earlier, and get in line. Because once that parking lot is full, they stop letting people drive up. And you have to wait there at the entrance gate until somebody leaves and there's a parking spot open. So you want to get there early. You also have to carry tire chains. This is one of the parks we mentioned. And you have to be leaving the parking area by four. The gate closes at five. And in this park also, they have ranger-led snowshoe walks on Saturdays. Uh, They begin at the Hurricane Ridge Visitor Center. And those run generally from December 31st to about late March, March 25th this year, I think. Uh, And those usually happen at 1.30. But with any of this information, check the website first because dates and times can change. Right. And if you are going on the snowshoe walk with the ranger, they will provide the snowshoes. Also, if you go up there and you don't have snowshoes and you're not doing the ranger-led walk, there is a um, like a gift shop in that visitor center with a rental place and you can rent snowshoes uh, and head off on your own. Okay, Karen, how about Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado? That is a place I would like to go and snowshoe. We have only been there in the summer. Now, they have ranger-led snowshoe walks available mid-January through mid-March, and reservations are required. You know, they lead them out of both uh, both of the two sides of the park. So there's one that leaves from the east side um, from Estes Park, and there's one that sets off from the west side via Grand Lake. So depending on which side of the park you're staying on, there is one you could join. And, of course, the the road uh, through the park from the east side to the west side and, and back is closed in the wintertime. So um, you're probably either accessing the park on the east or the west side. And uh, that's the only part of the park you're seeing that day. That's right. This is a little confusing. If you're going on the east side walk, you have to bring your own snowshoes. If you're going from the west side, they provide the snowshoes. And there are also places in throughout Estes Park where you can rent snowshoes. 
the town of Estes Park in the east has a ton of uh, infrastructure, restaurants, mm-hmm. lodges, uh, you know, places to eat uh, and, and stay. Grand Lake on the west side also, uh, not as big of a town, but plenty of infrastructure there. So Mm -hmm. uh, those would both be great destinations for some winter activities in the park. And I I would suggest probably one of the prettiest snowshoe hikes would have to be the um, Bear Lake area. So Matt, that Bear Lake corridor is open in the winter. You can hike from Bear Lake to Dream Lake and then on to Emerald Lake. And we have done that in the summer. It's stunning. So I can only imagine how pretty it must be in the winter. And we have done it in the summer when there has been ice and snow on the trail. So I'm sure in the wintertime, it's just perfect for snowshoeing. Yes. All right, let's move on to my dream, my dream trip. (laughs) Something that's still in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Sequoia and Kings Canyon. We got to find a way to get there in the winter sometime. We've uh, been to those parks a lot in, in the summertime. Uh, We have not snowshoed in them, but it's definitely in the bucket. It sure is. I can't imagine anything prettier than walking among those giant sequoias covered in snow. It just must be an amazing trek. Both the Kings Canyon um, side and the Sequoia side offer snowshoe hikes with a ranger. However, just note that sometimes in the winter, that road between the two parks closes when they get too much snow. So you can't always access both parks in the winter. Um, so, you you know, you definitely want to check the website for road conditions and snow conditions. Yeah. And up there where the visitor centers are, that's pretty high elevation. I think, uh, I know at least in Sequoia, it's 7,000 feet. So they're going to get a lot of snow, which makes the conditions for snowshoeing great, but also uh, makes travel a little bit more challenging. Right. And definitely check out the giant forest in Sequoia. And this is the home of General Sherman, the world's largest tree. The Rachel Dead Height goes through that area, or you could rent your own snowshoes at the Lodgepole Market and just head off on your own. Yeah, so that would be cool to do someday. Now let's talk about Yellowstone. Yeah, you know, Yellowstone, the thing about Yellowstone in the winter is most of the roads and the entrances are closed to cars. So the only way you're going to drive in is through the north entrance at Gardner, Montana. That is open all year round. And then the road from Gardner to Mammoth Hot Springs and from Mammoth Hot Springs to Silvergate and Cook City is plowed and open throughout the year. And there are plenty of places to pull off along that road between Mammoth and um, you know up through the Lamar Valley and into Cook City. There are plenty of places to pull off and, and snowshoe. Yeah, but I mean you do have to still watch for wildlife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know you have bison, you have elk, uh, and you have wolves. <laughs> Sometimes you have bears, depending on what time of the year it is. We, we always used to think that the bears hibernated as soon as the first uh, snow fell, but but they don't. They stick around, and sometimes they can be still out and about even in December. Right. And one of the cool things about visiting in the winter is that the uh, wildlife tends to move in closer to the thermal hot springs uh, to stay warm. So your chances of seeing wildlife might even be better in the winter. Um, We have also snowshoed around those uh, Mammoth Hot Springs terraces. That was cool to see because, of course, you've got the steam from the thermal features coming up. Um, And then right throughout Lamar Valley, 
one note, there are snow coaches that will take you to the Old Faithful area, and the Old Faithful Snow Lodge is open in the winter. If you want to do that, definitely you know check out the snow coaches and check out the the um, lodge there because it would be fun to snowshoe around Old Faithful. Yeah, it, it would be. So if you're there in the north part of the park up by Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel and you want to snowshoe but you don't have any, you can rent them there at the hotel. They have a little ski shop there. We've, we've actually rented uh, snowshoes there. And the people who work there are also a good source of information about where to go, what the current conditions are, things to look out for. So it, that's another good place to just get advice before you're heading out. Absolutely. Okay, and the last park on our list is Yosemite National Park in California. Yosemite National Park, this is also in your bucket, isn't it? Because you want to snowshoe around some of the big trees there also. Yes, I want to snowshoe at the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias. Um, I have seen photos of those in the snow. It looks stunning. Now, most people who go to snowshoe in Yosemite, they go to the Badger Pass ski area. Yes, the Badger Pass ski area is located on the Glacier Point Road. It's about five miles east of the junction with the Wawona Road. So the base of that ski area is about 7,000 feet. And then beyond Bagger Pass, the Glacier Point Road is closed to car traffic. And you can snowshoe up that road from the point where the car traffic is blocked. Right. It says on the website that the Badger Pass ski area is the center of the largest network of marked winter routes. And National Park Service rangers have free snowshoe walks starting from Badger Pass in mid-December through March. Also, the Yosemite Conservancy and the Yosemite Mountaineering School both lead guided snowshoe walks as well. So lots of fun winter activities happening at the Badger Pass ski area in Yosemite. Yeah, and listening to this list that we just went through of all these places to snowshoe in the parks, I mean, there's there's a lot you can do in the winter in these parks. And a lot of times, like we've said before, snowshoeing is really no more difficult than hiking. Right. If, if you have the shoes, you talk to a ranger or, or a concessionaire and give you some advice on where to go and what the conditions are. There's a lot of places you can snowshoe in the park. Yes, absolutely. So these are 12 great parks to snowshoe in, but there are other national parks that can be great for snowshoeing once they've had enough snow. I've heard that Teddy Roosevelt is good and Great Basin is good. So there are a lot of them out there to explore in the wintertime. Yeah, and like we say often, check the websites of these parks because conditions change and from year to year the ranger-led tours could change or where they're headed out of so definitely check the park website before you go to learn all the information you need to to have a great winter activity yes so we hope that you are tempted to try snowshoeing and so you can get out in the winter and see these magical parks covered in snow and and breathe some fresh air and uh, experience this winter wonderland and then you won't have to uh, sit and look out the window and and wait until spring yeah try it out we love snowshoeing all right thanks for joining us for this episode the last one of 2022 we'll be back in january with some exciting new episodes 
And if you have suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover in 2023 or any questions for our mailbag episodes, please email us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. Happy New Year's, everyone. Now I'm off to buy some blueberries and some kale. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Could you get some more uh, maple syrup? (laughs) You bet. (laughs) 